This is a Christmas Day talk by Joel, titled, What Jesus Taught, recorded December 25, 1995, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So today we're celebrating the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, who was the founder of the Christian religion. And uh, while we revere Jesus as a great mystic, uh, we are not Christians. The reason we're not Christians specifically is because we revere the mystics of other traditions as well, uh, Buddhist and Hindu and Muslim and Taoist and so forth. So uh, why uh, would we celebrate Jesus' birthday? Because we don't celebrate the birthdays of all these other mystics of all these other traditions. We don't celebrate Buddha's birthday or Moses' birthday or if anybody knows Moses' birthday. Uh, why Jesus? And frankly, this is a concession to our culture. <laughs> the celebration of Christmas is almost inescapable in one form or another. And uh, we do have a community here, and sometimes people get lonely on the holidays. They like a place to go. And perhaps more importantly, in our culture, our modern culture specifically, so much of the spiritual content of Christmas has been lost that it's nice to have a place to at least get a little spiritual content injected back into Christmas, hopefully. So... Uh, that's why we're celebrating Christmas here. So what, uh, what is there to celebrate from our point of view about the birth of Jesus? What's so special about Jesus, we might say? Or what, what, is it, uh, what is it about Jesus that we can point to that is special that we could celebrate? And we could say that uh, we believe here anyway, and that we hope you investigate for yourself, that the mystics of all tradition are teaching the same truth are bearing witness to the same reality. And in fact, uh, many of their teachings, uh, in a practical sense, of the, the, the instructions they give for various practices are very similar from tradition to tradition. But each of them is presented in a slightly unique way. You know, two teachers, even within a tradition, are going to present things exactly the same way. And the traditions themselves can be quite different. And this is usually determined by historical circumstances, at least in a, to a large extent. So your culture, your uh, background, and so forth will determine uh, uh, how you uh, phrase your teaching, the language, the worldview in which you present it. But also very important in, in background and culture is your class origins, your, your social standing. And most mystics have been from the upper uh, middle and upper classes. Uh, for instance, Buddha was the son of a, a warrior prince. Most of the great uh, gurus of India have been from the Brahmin class, which is the educated class, caste in that case. Uh, Muhammad was associated with a well-to-do merchant family. And even the uh, women mystics, uh, who often didn't have any uh, formal education, uh, were tended to be the wives and daughters of the nobility. Uh, Mirabai and Lady Tsoigal and Catherine of Genoa, and uh, Teresa of Vila, they were all, uh, they were all, uh, came from noble families. Uh, and so they grew up in a, in an atmosphere of intellectual sophistication. If they didn't themselves read, at least they were surrounded as, as they were growing up by people who read and, uh, and they would hear the teachings and they were very steeped in this in, in a very sophisticated way. So what's different about Jesus was that he wasn't uh, born to a middle or upper class family. He was a carpenter's son. We're almost certain of that. Legend has it he was born in a manger. And in fact, the story of Christmas emphasizes this, uh, that, that Jesus came from these lowly, humble origins. So this is very important because uh, he himself did not have a, a formal, sophisticated education, as far as we know. He knew uh, the Hebrew scriptures, because he was a good Jewish boy, and he went to temple often, and he was probably very interested in them. But he could, he could quote uh, back and forth with the Pharisees, you know, like an expert. He, knew he could pull a scripture out of the hat to answer some question or whatever, or in an argument or a debate. Uh, he might have known Greek. It's quite possible. The whole uh, area of uh, Judea and Galilee and all that had been under Greek rule for 300 years. And there were many Greek landlords around and, uh, and Greek uh, merchants wandering through the villages and so forth. And it was probably very much like uh, India in the last century under the British rule. 
Uh, and Greek was the lingua franca of the area. Uh, trade transactions were carried out in Greek. It was the literate language of uh, even of Jews. So it's possible just the way, for instance, in, uh, in India, many uh, Hindus, especially those who had contact with the British, uh, speak uh, English. But in any case, he did not have a formal education as far as we know. So his teachings reflect this. He was a man of the people. And not only uh, was he not uh, sophisticated as a, a teacher in the, in the formal sense of the word, but he, the audiences he addressed were unsophisticated. Uh, they weren't the sons and daughters of the nobility or the middle classes. They were peasants. And they were fishermen and prostitutes and so forth. He also addressed Pharisees and whatnot, but his main audience were, were the poor people. Therefore, his teachings tend to be very vivid and direct. Uh, he uses a lot of imagery, and he tells stories, as all good teachers do. Uh, but his the basic instructions of his teachings are very quite simple and quite direct and not very elaborate. So we would think uh, that Christianity would be a really relatively easy religion to understand, at least the, the practice of it, and to be able to follow. But as we know, historically, this has not been the case. Uh, Someone once said, and I don't know where I got this quote from, we don't know if Christianity is any good because no one has ever tried it. <laughs> so the question we want to talk about this morning here is, what did Jesus teach that no one has ever tried? What was his actual teaching? And I'm going to stick with the four uh, New Testament Gospels, even though we do have now materials, as I said earlier, from uh, the Gospel of Thomas and so forth, just because uh, Christians themselves through the centuries uh, never heard of the Gospel of Thomas. This is what they had to go on. What was in the Gospels? So regardless of what is historically authentic and all that whole debate, uh, a, a normal average Christian picking up the Gospel, what do they read? What does Jesus teach them through the Gospels? Well, first Jesus uh, tells uh, the goal of his teaching. What is the goal of his teaching? He says, if you continue to practice what I teach, then you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So it's interesting here, first of all, his emphasis on practice. You have to practice. If you put into practice all the things we're going to talk about later, then you'll know this truth. And knowing the truth, uh, you will become free. Free from what? Well, the context of the story makes very clear that it's free from sin. Because he's telling this to the Pharisees, and, uh, or they're Pharisees in the group of people he's talking to. And they say, oh, we're free. What are you talking about free? We've been free since Moses took out, uh, us out of Egypt. And he says, I'm not talking about political slavery. I'm, he says, you're all in bondage to sin. And what are the wages of sin, suffering, and death? So to be free is, from Jesus' point of view, is to be free from suffering and death. And it's also very interesting that the word uh, knowledge here, the root word to know, is the Greek term gnosis, which is the word that I like to use uh, because it's quite generic in this culture. People haven't heard of it before. If you talk about moksha or liberation, people think right away, oh, that's uh, Hindu. Or if you talk about enlightenment, they usually think, oh, that's uh, Buddhist or Hindu. But gnosis is a quite technical word in Greek, and it's a very specific kind of knowledge. In, in uh, Greek, in ancient Greek, they had several words for different sorts of knowledge. For instance, uh, opinion, just opinion, is uh, doxa. Uh, the word for the knowledge that a craftsperson has is uh, techne, or where technique comes from that. But gnosis means, very specifically, the highest form of knowledge. Knowledge, direct knowledge, unmediated knowledge of reality itself. So he's not talking about just knowing some doctrine. He's talking about knowing some, some uh, spiritual truth here about reality. And that's obviously why you have to practice, because it's not just a question of being able to communicate and say, oh, this is the truth, now you all know it, go home. And this is precisely what Jesus criticized the religious expert of his time for, losing track of this kind of knowledge, this gnosis. And he says to them, he says to the Pharisees and the scribes and so forth, he says, Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves haven't entered, and you have also barred the way of those who are trying to enter. 
So he's saying, really, about his own tradition, uh, not that it's uh, uh, the tradition's no good. They've been passed down uh, all they need to arrive at this truth through Gnosis. But they've forgotten it. They've lost it. They have the keys to knowledge in their hand, but they're not practicing it. And not only that, they get very upset uh, with people like Jesus who come along and, and want to try to practice it. And if we look through the history of religions, we find this is a, a perennial uh, cycle religions go through. They're founded by mystics. Uh, in the beginning, they're very vital, and uh, people know what they're doing. But over time, they start to lose track of the inner truth that's being taught, and they start to pay a lot of attention to the rules and the regulations and the forms and, and the rituals and whatever. And they lose sight of what the thing's all about. And then a healthy tradition, new mystics arise, and they reform the tradition. They point back to the founder and they say, yes, but this is what Jesus was really talking about. Uh, or this is what the Buddha was really talking about. It's not uh, unusual that a religion starts to lose sight of its uh, message. Uh, but as long as a religion then uh, also produces reformists and new mystics, it'll continue to be a healthy living religion. When that doesn't happen, it'll die out. So uh, Jesus often calls this condition of spiritual freedom, uh, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of the Father, or the kingdom of heaven. Again, a very vivid kind of image for uh, peasants and uh, fishermen and so forth, that it's some sort of, it's, it's kind of like a place, it's something that uh, you can actually enter through this gnosis. But he also says very clearly that this kingdom of God is not some paradise off in the sky someplace, and it's not something that's in the future. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in any observable way, nor will anybody be able to say, look, it is here, or it is there. For see, the kingdom of God is already present. Now, most of you are probably more familiar with this quote as the end uh, being translated as the kingdom of God is within you. And actually the Greek word is a little ambiguous. It could be, it just means that it's present, it's here, now. It doesn't necessarily mean inside you. If we do look to, let's say, the Gospel of Thomas, this is one of those passages I said earlier where there's an illumination about this. He says the kingdom of God is within you and it is without you. Uh, but we're not going to draw in the Gospel of Thomas. This is in uh, uh, the traditional Gospels. This is Luke 17, chapters 20 to 21. So the kingdom of God is right here. It's present. Only we don't see it. We are ignorant of it. And the word ignorant comes from uh, the word gnosis. Gnosis is spelled G-N-O-S-I-S. G-N-O is the root of that word. It's the same root, by the way, in Sanskrit of janana, which is the, which is the term for knowledge, highest knowledge in Sanskrit. G-N-A and, uh, J-N-A, uh, and G-N-O are the same, uh, Indo-European root. Ignorance, I-G-N-O-R-A-N-C-E, just means not gnosis, not having gnosis. So there's something about the kingdom of God is here and we don't see it. <coughs> Now, it is true that in, the, uh, in all the synoptic Gospels anyway, there are passages where Jesus seems to talk about the kingdom of God as some event, apocalyptic event that's going to come fairly soon. Uh, and he describes it. He says when uh, he makes these prophecies, when the, uh, when the abomination appears in the temple as was prophesied by Daniel, then there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be lightning and earthquakes, and people are going to slaughter each other. And then it's very interesting. He talks about people uh, taking off to the hills, fleeing to the hills of Judea, and, and, and the whole temple being destroyed, and, and so forth. Now, Normal Christians uh, through the centuries didn't know this, but we now uh, know, or at least suspect from scholarship, that this was uh, something inserted much later. Why? Because it describes an event that actually happened. In 70 AD, there was an uprising among the Jews, and the Romans came in and crushed them and destroyed the temple. People fled to the hills of Judea. There were corpses piled up. Uh, it was a devastating event for the Jewish people. That was the beginning of the Jewish exile, the, the diaspora. Uh, 
and it must have seemed like the end of the world was really coming. And so uh, uh, it's very probable, highly probable, that later writers attributed these descriptions to Jesus to prove that Jesus really was the prophet. You see, our boy predicted this. And this is a very common thing that happens, not just in Christianity, but in uh, many traditions. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a backhanded prophecy. You, know, you, you insert the prophecy after the event, and then, but then attribute it to an earlier time. And, and it was certainly during the uh, second, latter part of the first century and second century in, in Christianity, there was this expectation that Jesus was, was going to return. Uh, one of the things he says in this passage is, all this is going to happen in this generation. There will be those who won't see death before all this happens, which again fits very well with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But uh, the Christians, you know, thought, well, gee, he's coming very soon. And of course he didn't, and so... This gets put off to some the end of time. Now it's taken to be a prophecy for the end of time. Now, that's interesting for us here at the center because we are interested in uh, trying to sort out a little bit what's authentic here and what's uh, uh, whether Jesus really was a mystic or whether he was some sort of maniacal prophet, which sometimes he sounds like in the Bible. <coughs> but regardless of that, let's give uh, fundamentalists uh, the benefit of the doubt the, even if the kingdom of God is some sort of apocalyptic event coming at the end of the time, you can't just sit around waiting for it. You can't just, you know, be nice and, and, and pray and, and wait for it to happen and think everything's going to be okay. Because Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So even if, let's, let's say it's a, some sort of apocalyptic event. We don't know. It's going to happen in thousands of years and we're all going to be raised from the, from the graves and so forth. There's something required here before you're going to be able to see it. When it comes, you won't even see it. You'll still be ignorant of what's going on. And this image of being born again is a very, very powerful image. What does it, what does it mean? Well, it's a, it means there's a, a complete reorientation of our lives are necessary. And not just changing our thoughts, adopting some dogma or belief system, but our emotions and our desires and our attachments and our whole psycho-spiritual being has to be transformed in some way. And Jesus gives two fundamental principles of how to bring this about. And he's very clear about this. He says, he's asked, what are the great, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, what he's saying is the whole rest of religion is about implementing this. Everything else is secondary, is a means. Everything hinges on this. Take away one of these commandments and it's all just empty uh, rigmarole. So, that sounds great, but how do you practice these two things? And one of the great things about Jesus, he's very specific. He gives very concrete directions about how to go about doing this. So let's take the second one first. Because the second one, you know, is a little bit of a, it's sort of kindergarten uh, or, or, or high school to, before you graduate into uh, going on to the university. Notice the thread in the two commandments is love. <coughs> I mean, that's the whole teaching right here. And uh, Paul says someplace, he says, I think, how, do you, uh, how can you love God who you can't see until you learn to love human beings who you can see? So uh, Jesus is saying we can practice with our neighbors. See, we can learn about love through practicing with our neighbors, and then uh, we can learn through that to love God in this fashion that he's talking about. So let's start with the second first. How, how does he uh, recommend that we learn to do this, to love our neighbors as ourselves? Well, he gives you one now uh, general rule to cover it. He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. It's very important to listen to this uh, and to note that he does not say, do unto others as they do unto you. 
but do unto others as you would have them do unto you, regardless of what they're doing to you. As we'll see, this is the whole basis of his teaching. And then he gives very, very concrete examples, just so you don't miss the point here, so you don't miss the practical nature of this instruction. He says, uh, I say unto you, don't resist evil. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, all we're trying to do is understand here what he's talking about. Whether we want to do this or not, or, or whatever, that's a secondary question. But let's be very clear what he's saying. He's saying, if someone comes along and mugs you, don't fight back. If you're in a bar and someone punches you in the nose, you don't punch them back. In fact, you, <laughs> uh, you offer them your chin. <laughs> it's very clear here. This thing, you know, and he gives this very concrete example. If someone sues you in court for your coat, let him have your shirt as well. This is one of my favorite for today, particularly this country is so litigation mad, you know. Uh, and he's not just talking about, you know, coats here. I mean, if someone sues you for your television, if someone sues you for your car or your house or whatever they're suing you for, not only do you not resist the suit, you go to court and say, you want my TV? Why don't you take my car too? That's what he's saying, right? It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's very important for us to understand how, how uncompromising, how crazy and radical this is. If someone conscripts you to walk a mile, go with him too. Now, this is a a, uh, a little bit vague, and scholars aren't completely agreed on exactly what this meant. Uh, I've read several versions. One apparently was that if you were um, visiting somebody in, uh, in let's say, Jerusalem, uh, when you left, uh, your host was supposed to walk a mile roughly with you, just to make sure you were safe. You know, there are rough streets in Jerusalem, there are bad neighborhoods like any place else. And it was a big inconvenience. People didn't like to do it, but this was something you're supposed to do. Another version was that this, uh, that Roman legions and whatever would conscript people. They'd pass through a village and they'd conscript local people to, to carry their baggage, in the, you know, for roughly a mile. And then they'd release them and conscript another bunch of local people. So there are various versions of what this actually might have meant at the time. But, and this doesn't happen today. I mean, people don't come and grab you off the street and say, hey, carry my baggage for a mile. So how can we think of this today? What would Jesus say today? Because the idea is here is if you're being asked to do something uh, unpleasant or inconvenient, to do, go out of your way and do twice as much. And, and my working career here is, uh, it's not in my job description, <laughs> you know what I mean? Here you're at work and uh, you have your job and somebody else comes along and asks you to do something else. And you say, that's not my job description. Well, Jesus would, I'm sure, today would say, uh, would amend this for today and say, uh, if someone asks you to do something, don't say it's not in my job description. Do twice as much for them. Give to anyone who asks. And if someone wants to borrow from you, don't turn them away. And in other places, he says, don't charge them any interest. That would be the end of capitalism <laughs> if we uh, practice that part of it. And, of course, it was. There were laws against usury all through the Middle Ages, and uh, capitalism couldn't get off the ground until everybody just ignored them. But Jesus very specifically says, don't uh, charge money and interest. But give to anyone who asks. Now, he certainly, I think, meant, you know, like when you're walking down the street and homeless people come up to you and ask money from you. I don't know what he would say about uh, today where you get uh, flooded with mail from, uh, you know, all these organizations or phone calls uh, day in and day out. Uh, but the essence of this is, uh, you know, whenever you can, give to whoever needs anything without expecting something back. This is always the key in, uh, in his teachings about this. Without waiting, don't give it hoping you'll get something back or, or keeping track in your mind about, well, I gave them this and that, they owe me this and that. Here's an interesting one. Judge not and you shall not be judged. If we just look at our own minds in this one, you can see this judging mind all the time. We're, we're chaka, 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 chaka. 
Christians, uh, uh, fundamentalist Christians, of course, take this, would, if they, if they practice it, would take this to mean, come judgment day, you're going to be judged, and Jesus is telling you, so don't judge, because then God won't judge you. But really, we can take this as a very astute psychological, psycho-spiritual observation, very much like the law of karma. If you uh, watch somebody, uh, or watch your own mind, watching somebody and judging them, let's say, uh, I don't know, you're all going probably to some parties over the holidays here, and you watch somebody uh, loading their plate up with food, and your mind says, oh, look how greedy they are, how, you know, just taking everything. You watch. That means, even though it isn't present in the judgment, implicitly, if someone ever says to you, you know, you're a greedy, selfish person, you'll be devastated you'll be devastated. Or if you find yourself and can notice yourself doing that, you will be devastated. That, that judge, judging mind works both ways. If you judge others, you'll judge yourself that way, or you're vulnerable to the judgments of others. Judge not. Watch your mind. And this is, a, this is a one that's uh, uh, not easy to practice, but it doesn't take any outward changing of anything to practice. All you have to do is watch your own mind. Whenever you catch yourself judging other people, remember that. You have heard it said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. And pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, again, you know, he's making very clear what he intends here. Someone at work insults you, you know, insult them back. You say a little prayer for them. Someone does, uh, cheats you, you think of something good to do for them. If you find someone's your enemy, instead of responding by retaliating or defending yourself or whatever, love them. Wild, isn't it? For if you love those who love you, what's so exceptional about that? Don't even the publicans do the same? In other words, he's making very clear here, you're not supposed to be like everybody else around you. You're not supposed to be like all the worldly people around you. There's no big reward uh, in, you know, just loving people who love you and helping your friends because they help you and all that. That is not the spiritual practice. That's just what everybody does. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. The spiritual practice is going totally against all that. So, loving thy neighbor is really, if we want to use a modern word, is really the practice of unconditional love for human beings. Loving them regardless of what they do to you, without putting any condition on that love. Whether they cheat you, whether they insult you, whether they steal from you, whether they do you dirty, whether they, you know, cross you in love, or whatever the, the thing is, in romance, romantic love, or whatever. This practice of unconditional love, which is really what? Practicing selflessness. Not thinking of yourself. Putting the welfare of others above yourself. In all situations, from Jesus' point of view, in all situations. So this is the uh, training for now this higher love, the love of God. The first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. So how do you practice that? Are there practices you can actually do with this? Don't, I mean, doesn't it mean just sort of sit down and think up nice feelings about God? No, but Jesus has a lot of practice to do around this one. Very concrete. First of all, he says, don't store up treasure here on earth, where moth and rust destroy them, and where burglars break in and steal them. But store up your treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys them, and where burglars do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. And that last line is the big clue. Where is your heart? If you're going to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, that's uh, all. That doesn't mean loving uh, your house and your car and your dog and all that. Where your where what you value your treasure is the clue to where your heart is.
if you are real concerned about your house and, and when you go away that people are going to break in and steal and you get fire, I mean, uh, burglar alarms and all that and, and you get, uh, you know, fierce, uh, Doberman pinchers and, and chain link fences, that shows you where your heart is. It's not with God. It's with this house. And he also tells you why this is silly. I mean, ultimately silly. The house is impermanent, you know. Uh, houses, fire will burn it down, it'll wear away eventually, you know. God is, from Jesus' point of view, eternal. And all this stuff is impermanent. And so in a sense, he's saying, you know, it's silly to do this, but he's also giving you a practice. Watch the things that you are concerned about, or protective of. That's where your heart is. And if your heart is there, it ain't with God. Now, Jesus did not despise worldly things, as, as actually sometimes this has been interpreted. And if you read through the Gospels, just the normal four New Testament Gospels, he was something of a party animal. No, it's absolutely true. The first miracle he performed, what did he do? He goes to a wedding, they run out of wine. So he changes water into the wine so everybody can continue drinking and dancing. Have you ever been to a Jewish wedding? They're wild, you know. Not only that, he changes it into the best wine, the finest wine, because they come and they say, my gosh, to the host, they say, you know, most people, they give their good wine first, because once you've drunk it, you know, you don't care and you drink anything, but you saved your best wine for last. So he had enough appreciation, not only just to change into wine, but to change into, you know, really nice Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, a Chardonnay, a good, it really... Uh, he, uh, many times in the Gospels, he's invited to wealthier people's homes to eat. They have big feasts. They sit around feasting. Uh, one time, uh, uh, or three times in the Gospels, people actually come and criticize him because he eats too much and he drinks too much. And they say, you know, uh, John the Baptist, who uh, was a contemporary of his, who was an ascetic, who lived out by the River Jordan, and he lived on, you know, thistles and honey and stuff, Jesus says, you know, John the Baptist doesn't eat uh, meat and he doesn't drink wine. And all you guys say, he's, he's crazy. He's possessed by a devil. He says, but I come along and I eat meat and I drink wine. And you say, well, I'm, you're a glutton and you're a drunkard, a wine bibber. And he says, but, you know, wisdom justifies all her children. Meaning that that's not what's at stake here. Whether you're going to be a strict ascetic or whatever, or whether you're going to uh, eat a lot and drink a lot and enjoy all this. What does it have to do with the attachment? The attachment to it. The holding on and the clinging. He could also fast. He went in the desert and fasted for 40 days. It doesn't matter. Uh, another later Christian mystic, uh, Meister Eckhart, says, you know, as long as you can feast and fast in the exact same spirit, it's fine. That's an interesting thing to watch especially over the holidays when you're feasting. And then uh, uh, take a day off to fast and see if you treat it all in the exact same spirit. <laughs> if you want to know the truth that sets you free, you cannot be ruled by desires and attachments. And you cannot let these worldly things distract you. You can't put your heart, set your heart on them. This is a total love is the way to this gnosis, a total uh, surrender, selflessness. This is why, and again, you see Jesus always has very specific stories to illustrate this. A rich young man comes to Jesus, and he says, um, Master, what should I do to attain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the Ten Commandments. And he lists them all out, and the young man says, yeah, I've been doing that ever since you know I was a kid, but I don't know, I haven't entered the kingdom of heaven yet. I'm not, you know... And Jesus says, well, he says, if you really want to be perfect, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, so you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, again, this, this phrase brings back here, treasure in heaven. How do you store up treasure in heaven? It, it, exactly in proportion that you get rid of attachments here. You store up treasure in heaven. Why? Because your heart, if you sell all you have and give it to the poor and go follow Jesus and, and really uh, let it all go, then your heart, you won't be thinking about that stuff. You won't be concerned about it. You'll have one focus. Total commitment is what Jesus is, is asking for on this quest. The, the absolute priority, total commitment of your life 
is to be focused on this. It's not just a matter of divesting yourself of physical possessions. It's also reorientating what goes on in your heart and mind. And this is why he says, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for your body, what you shall put on, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God. Again, this is something like the judgment, the judging, is something you can watch in your own mind. You can watch yourself, you know, get up in the morning and say, now, what am I going to eat tonight? Now, why really? I'm going to have some lamb chops. That sounds good. Da, 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 da. Or what am I going to wear? Right? And you go into the closet, trying different things, look in the mirror. Ah, no, no, no. Ah, but this is what he's talking about, isn't it? You see, it's right there. He says, well, but why? Because look what you're, look what you're concerned about. The, the key to your heart is through your mind, your thoughts, you know, what you're thinking about. It's where your heart is. If you're thinking all day about clothes and f food and all that stuff, that's where your heart is. If your heart is there, it can't be on God. It's even this applies to letting go of all attachment to your bodily existence. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For who, whosoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, that's a little bit more of a riddle. But it's quite clear what he's talking about. As long as you're clinging to your life, as long as you're concerned about your life, saving your life and all that, then you're gonna, you are gonna lose that life. Not only are you gonna lose that life, but you're gonna lose this other life that you can find if you let that go. This eternal life, as Jesus calls it often. The essence of Jesus' teaching is this radical selflessness. And in his uh, instructions, it's acquired through a, a very uh, frank uh, practice of external renunciation. Give up all those goodies, the possessions and so forth, and go wandering about. Now, how many Christians actually do that? Some actually have tried this. Uh, the early desert uh, mothers and fathers did. They gave up all their possessions, went out to the desert. Uh, the, the ones, probably the two most famous ones, are Francis and Claire. You know, I, I, see, Francis, he came, by the way, he did come from a wealthy merchant family, but he could read. He read what was in the gospel. He said, well, let me try this. And Claire did too. She saw Francis doing it. She said, well, let me try this too. And what do, they, what do they come back and report? They say, my gosh, this is, this is true freedom. This is joy. This is happiness. There's a wonderful scene in the movie, uh, Zeffirelli's movie of St. Francis, which is, in my opinion, not that hot a movie. But there's one great scene in it where St. Francis, just before he, he goes out uh, and becomes this mendicant, uh, wandering monk, uh, he starts throwing all his father's goods out of the windows of the house. And his father is outraged. The boy's finally gone completely off his rocker and he grabs him and he's furious and he's dragging through the streets of Assisi to take him down to the magistrate to have him punished. And Francis is being dragged through the streets and he's radiant and laughing and smiling and he's telling all the people around, he says, give up all your possessions, give up all your stuff. You see how unhappy it makes my father? <laughs> you see how miserable he is? Why? Because he's attached to it all and clinging to it all. Many Christians excuse themselves on the grounds that, well, you see, Jesus was divine, and he was perfect, and we can't be like Jesus. So that's the beginning of the yes-but mind, I call it. You know, yes, yes, these are great teachings, but we don't, you know, they don't really apply to us, uh, and so forth. And Jesus did say, I and, I and the Father am one. But he also said, he prayed to the Father, and the glory you gave me, I have given them his disciples, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be made perfect in one. So he didn't mean just I and the Father am one and all the rest of you are, you know, dingbats or something. Or he probably thought they were dingbats often. But his whole purpose <laughs> of the teaching was to get them to realize what he realized. 
that he and the Father are one, they and the Father are one, they and he are one, and th- th- there's this perfection that we do not see. Perfect is a word Jesus likes to use often. And he, and people say, well, nobody can be like perfect like Jesus, but Jesus keeps saying, be you perfect like your Father in his heaven is perfect. And Jesus did not brook any excuses from his own disciples. Maybe Christians think today they would get excused, but it, there are a lot of passages in the Bible about people making excuses. One uh, wannabe Christian uh, told Jesus, he says, you know, I'll come follow you, but let me go bury my father first. His father had just died, you know. And, uh, and Jesus' answer to him was, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, those people are all spiritually dead. Let them worry about that. You come now. Another uh, another one said, "I'll I'll come uh, you know follow you, but first I'll, I'll go home and say goodbye to my folks." These are you know pretty reasonable things to ask. And Jesus' answer was, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God." This is pretty radical. He's saying, you know, <laughs> drop it now, <laughs> now, not tomorrow, not after you go and buried your father, taking care of all this. And finally, at one point, he's exasperated. You know, people think that uh, all mystics are just always emotionally very even-keeled or have no emotions, you know. You read through Jesus' stuff, he gets very exasperated at times. And this is one uh, a time where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't even practice what I teach you? They're frustrated with these people. Why? Because at the same time, they come, they sit at his feet, and they listen to his great teachings, and then they go off and just ignore them. Why don't you practice what I teach you? Not believe what I teach you. Practice, practice. This is the whole key to, to Jesus' teaching here. Now, many mystics have practiced and, and preached this form of extreme external renunciation. Uh, Buddha is a classic example, and Buddha and Jesus' teachings are very, very similar. You read through the uh, early Pali texts, the Dhammapada and so forth, and, you know, return good for evil and all this. You find all this in Buddhism. And Buddha himself, you know, abandoned his home and family and went off and was a wandering mendicant with a robe and a begging bowl. Uh, Shankara, a great uh, Hindu uh, uh, teacher, the founder of Vedanta, he himself was a renunciate, a classic Indian renunciate. Uh, many Taoists were hermits. They abandoned the cities and went off and lived in the mountains, you know, in the forest and so forth. But also, at the same time, many of the great mystics have not been external renunciates or or taught it. Uh, in fact, in uh, both the Muslim, uh, the Islamic, and the Jewish tradition, it's rather frowned on. And even the great mystics of those traditions, the Kabbalists and the Hasids and the Sufis and so forth, were generally speaking not renunciates like this. They were generally householders. They generally speaking had families and children. This is considered a, a valuable field of practice in those traditions. And then, of course, the Bhagavad Gita, which is the most popular and greatest, perhaps, Hindu classic, is uh, the, whole, the whole message of the Bhagavad Gita is you can practice spirituality without being a, an external renunciate, without running off into the forest and the deserts and so forth. And the whole teaching of the Bhagavad Gita is how to uh, practice uh, this path, but remaining a householder. And... It's obviously, just at a practical level, not feasible for a whole society to <laughs> run off all at once and become renunciates. Uh, you can't, as a householder, sell all that you have and give to the poor, as Jesus recommends. If you're a householder, you've got a family, you've got children and so forth, you've got responsibilities there. And for the sake of some sort of social uh, uh, order, some justice and some peace in the world, you can't always uh, not resist evil. Sometimes you have to resist evil. The Bhagavad Gita opens with Arjuna uh, on a battlefield about to fight this war against his uh, evil relatives who have usurped the throne and are ruining the, the kingdom. And he's so horrified at the prospect of fighting the civil war and, and slaughtering f- uh, family and friends, and he realizes it's going to be a devastating war. He throws down his weapons and he sits down in the dust and he says, I'd rather the armies just ride over me. This, this, you would think, is what Jesus recommended, you know? Don't resist evil, turn the other cheek. And Krishna, who's incarnated as his charioteer, says, Arjuna, what the hell's the matter with you? Get up off the, uh, out of the dust there. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Gird up your loins. You've got responsibilities here. You've got to fight this battle. And then there's a whole little talk about the necessity for, uh, to uphold justice in the world. 
Uh, so uh, this is not a universal teaching that we have to have this external renunciation in order to follow a mystical path. But, and this is the big but, all mystics and all paths have insisted that we still practice this radical selflessness. And very often through a practice of unconditional love. Because this path requires an inner renunciation, even more so than the outer renunciation. And the practice of an outer renunciation is very powerful. It's like a crash course. Boy, it'll show you all your inner attachments very quickly. When you, if you tomorrow you go home and just look around your house and think, what if I really sold everything and just ran off and tried to find God? You see, all your attachments would rise like armies. That's <laughs> a good practice even just to think about. They'll, they'll all rise up and stare you in the face. You know? uh, but regardless of whether you do that, you still have to practice this inner renunciation. You still have to uh, practice this detachment and sir of all these earthly treasures that take your heart and your attention away from the divine. This is why Krishna tells Arjuna, yes, fight this war, but without any personal attachment to the results. And the whole teaching of the Bhagavad Gita is to continue to live as a householder, but to do everything not for yourself, but for Krishna. Everything you do, do for me. Whatever you, uh, actions you take, do it for me. Dedicate it to me. If you uh, make an offering of a leaf or uh, a food or whatever, do it. dedicate it all to me. Carry out your duties in the world, but don't be attached to the results, how they're going to benefit you. Just simply do them because they are duties. Do them selflessly. Do them for the sake of the society as a whole and for others, not for yourself. Now, personally, I must say, I'm of this latter school. Quite obviously, I've still got some possessions around here. Uh, you might call me a, a semi-renunciate. I did practice, to a large degree, actually, on my spiritual path. Those of you who read my book know. I gave up a career in Hollywood and a house and a car and all that. And I, and I didn't give them all to the poor. I gave them to my ex-wife. But I just <laughs> dumped them on her and, um, and walked out the door, basically. I had enough money I saved, and I bought a little Volkswagen van. And the only possessions I kept were what would fit in that Volkswagen van. It was stuff pretty good, but uh, a lot of it was books. And uh, and then I had a few grand in the bank, which ultimately I even burned up because I spent that writing my book and up in Lone Pine. So I ended up with the whole thing with a Volkswagen van full of stuff and uh, nothing. Um, so, uh, but I believe that uh, you can walk a spiritual path without practicing this extreme form of external renunciation. It's more difficult, by the way. Not easier, it's much more difficult. But I believe it's worth doing. I believe it's worth doing because I believe our own historical circumstances uh, require a spiritual revolution, not only for the individual, not only for each of us individually, but also one that will ultimately spread out from the individual, begins always with the individual, but ultimately to transform society, to restore some uh, sacredness to our society, which is totally lost. And we can't do that if we all just become renunciates and uh, wander out. That's not a good example to set if we are also going to have our intention to uh, not only transform ourselves, but society as a whole. Nevertheless, Jesus' teachings were invaluable to me personally on my path, and uh, I use them all the time in my, I quote them in my uh, the teachings now that I give. Because there, nowhere that I know of is this necessity for this root principle of selflessness conveyed so vividly, so forcefully, so strongly, so uncompromisingly. It really situ uh, makes you, uh, at least it made me, uh, sit up and take note of this, take it seriously, and realize that the spiritual path is not about just meditating on your pillow for an hour a day, or going to meetings like this, or reading some of the Bhagavad Gita. It's really about transforming your life moment to moment, day to day, at this level, this level of interactions with other human beings and with your environment around you. 
So if you are going to remain a householder, my recommendation to you would be to take Jesus' teachings as a default position. In other words, unless there is some uh, clear uh, social requirement to behave otherwise, to resist evil or, or to uh, have some minimum amount of possessions so you have a comfortable home for your family and so forth, remember Jesus' teachings and take them seriously and try to practice them. Not this is God sitting up there saying, if you don't do this, then we're going to punish you at the end of time. That's not what Jesus meant. Uh, and that's not why he taught this. He taught this because he said, look, if you do this, you will find this incredible joy, this incredible freedom. And, and it's actually quite obvious if you just start watching where your source of your suffering, it comes from all this self-concern. To give all that up, just to be free of that, that sad old self with all its sad sufferings and worries and cares and woes. It's a wonderful thing. This isn't a practice where you endure these hardships so you earn brownie points so you get into heaven. It's through the practice you discover this joy and this freedom. And you discover uh, that where your suffering came from that you were ignorant of, and you begin to have insight into that, and you begin to relinquish the sources of your suffering. One of my favorite, favorite uh, lines is from uh, Ananda Moyamai, who's she's a Hindu mystic, and she says, uh, and she was a great renunciate herself, but she says, ultimately, she says to worldly people, she says, you know, it's not uh, we mystics who are the great renunciates. She said, you're the great renunciates because you're renouncing the supreme happiness, and that makes you supreme renunciates. Practicing selflessness is the essence, the whole essence of all mystical paths. You read through any of the traditions, convince yourself, don't take my word for it, you'll see these teachings in one form or another come up over and over and over again. And the important thing is that practicing them, actually putting them into practice instead of just paying lip service to them, instead of just saying, Lord, Lord, and not doing what's being taught here, not at least trying it, at least try it a little bit at first, and then maybe more and more and more. If you persevere, if you keep practicing, as Jesus says, it will bear fruit. Because as Jesus himself says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And for him who knocks, the door is opened. But the whole key here is you have to ask. You have to seek. You have to knock. You have to practice. No teacher, no guru, no God incarnate, no anybody else can do that for you. Merry Christmas and a happy, happy new year.